Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. This is the word of the Lord. Can you picture it? The disciples reclining around a table, not sitting up like this, but reclining on one elbow, their feet out behind them. The meal set before them, and as Aaron just read, they had already started eating. You know, for the disciples, they had grown up in homes that were probably religious. They had been doing this Passover feast every year the same way. They sang the same psalms and the hymns each year. They drank from the four cups that represented the four promises from Exodus 6. And Jesus was playing the father figure at the table, leading them through what they were used to doing every single year. But in the middle of eating, Jesus takes off his robe and gets up. He gets some water. And he comes around the back of the table to every single disciple, and he starts washing their feet. They had to be incredibly confused because that was the job of a servant. And Jesus was dressed like a servant, but he was also their Lord. And so I don't know what their confusion was like, but they were deeply confused. And that confusion, in a lot of ways, is the story of Jesus' life and ministry some weird combination of expectation versus reality, right? They had an expectation of what a Messiah would look like. And Jesus was constantly and consistently disappointing their expectations. Yet, at the same time that he was disappointing their expectations, behind the scenes, he was actually far exceeding what they had ever dreamed was possible. I think this graphic helps us think about it. There's a messianic expectation, and then there's the humility of Jesus that to those expecting a Savior was incredibly disappointing. But then there's the work he was actually doing that was more than they ever dreamed was possible. Kings don't come into their reign to two poor parents with zero notoriety. Yet through Jesus' poverty, we become rich. Kings don't come to serve, but to be served. But Jesus flipped that. In Jesus' reign, service is what greatness looks like. The Messiah doesn't come to die, he comes to conquer. Yet Jesus, in dying, conquers death itself. See, in every apparent disappointment of their expectations... Jesus was doing a far greater work, something of great, great glory. But it wasn't just the skeptics from the outside looking in at Jesus who didn't understand him. It wasn't just the outsiders who didn't really know him. (laughs) 
It was the people closest to him that just didn't get it. Just a deep sense of confusion, and underneath that confusion, misunderstanding. As a matter of fact, Jesus says it exactly. In the verses right after Aaron read, it says this. So he's washing their feet, and he comes to Simon Peter, and you know Peter's got to say something, right? Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, listen, what I am doing you do not understand now. Yeah. But afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Peter was confused, obviously. I mean, Jesus said it to him, you don't understand what I'm doing. And then Peter gets frustrated because he doesn't understand what Jesus is doing, right? So Peter has the reaction that is probably the right reaction, right? This, this is the one who's supposed to be leading the meal. He should be the head of the table. He should be, he calls him Lord. Jesus has already confessed that he's the Messiah. Now he's calling him Lord. He's expecting Jesus to be the king, They've talked about what's going to happen when the kingdom comes, right? Who's going to be the greatest? As a matter of fact, they'll argue about that in a few minutes after dinner. But Peter knows that Jesus is a great king. And a great king should not be washing the filth off of his feet. In one sense, Peter was right. But in another sense, as Jesus says it, you don't understand what I'm doing right now. Later you will. And so we get to be in that later part where we look back, but I think if I were there, I probably would have misunderstood it too. And there's some things that I think Peter misunderstood that I still struggle to understand. Two things in particular, there's probably a lot, but one is I think Jesus misunderstood, or that Peter misunderstood the wonder of Jesus' grace. Grace is really hard to receive. We talk about grace a lot. It's really common to talk about grace. It's amazing. It's a free gift and all that. But the reality is when we actually have grace presented to us, it can be really hard to receive. Can you imagine? Think about somebody that, not in your family, not somebody you know, maybe the person that you most respect in the world that you've never met. And you're given an opportunity to have lunch with that person. So you sit down. He seems friendly. He's smiling and you're, you're fumbling in your head, what am I even gonna say? I'm so excited to be here. And as you're trying to work out your first words, he looks at you and not angrily or meanly, he just says, you smell terrible. <laughs> and then as your mind is racing and you finally realize what he said, you're embarrassed, I mean, beyond embarrassed, you're mortified. You finally have this moment and you smell terrible. And then when you finally get your, your thoughts together, you realize he's taken off his jacket and his tie, and he's sitting on the floor of the restaurant with a bowl of water, and he's untying your shoes. And you realize that's where the stench is coming from. He starts to peel your socks off. Can you imagine that? You can a little bit, but you probably can't, because none of us would let it get to that point, right? The second that happened, we would take off to the bathroom and try to figure out what smells bad, wash it, I would be sitting on the counter with my feet in the sink, <laughs> trying to spray cologne on myself, you know, because we have to cover it, right? We can't let somebody else experience the stench. That's what's happening with every one of the disciples in that moment. And of course Peter says that, right? This is disgusting, and he, of all people in the universe, it can't be him, right? 
he can't receive grace. A free gift from the only one who can cleanse him. He said, no, 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 I can do it. I should be the one doing it. That's how I am. Dane Ortland, in a book called Deeper, he says it this way. What's your response when you're aware of your sin? If you're like me, you know Christ died for that, and you're grateful. But just to show how grateful you are, or to seal the deal, you do a bit of psychological self-inflicted pain to top it off. Not, of course, to self-consciously add to the work of Christ, heaven forbid. Just to let them know how much you care. To make it clear that you're a serious Christian. Nothing physical, just a bit of externalized obedience or formal service or sucking on the guilt a little bit. But the glory of the gospel is that this attempt to help God out is not only unnecessary, but a rejection of God's offer in Christ. It's hard to understand free grace. It's hard to receive it. But I also think Peter didn't understand the wonder of Christ's humility. You know, just a few months before that night, Jesus had said plainly, we have it written in the book of Mark, for even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's giving his statement of purpose. It's to be a servant. And the moment Jesus takes on the form of a servant, Peter says, nah, not with me. Jesus is the king of the universe, the one through whom and for whom all things exist. But his kingship is so contrary to any concept of what a kingly ruler would look like, we just can't grasp it. He is one who comes to serve. The foot washing that Jesus did is exactly the type of reign that Jesus will have in the world and that his followers after him will have even as they reign with him. You see, Jesus is not humiliated before he's exalted. Jesus is exalted in his humility. But this is not a new concept in the Bible. To the disciples, this was confusing. It was jarring. But Jesus knew the whole story. Jesus knew his identity before he came to this moment to serve. And his identity wasn't just something he came up with along the way. It's something he has been writing in his scriptures from the very beginning. Our call to worship hinted at it from Isaiah. It's called the Servant Songs. That's the section that that call to worship was taken from. And in those Servant Songs, it tells, it paints a picture really of who this coming Messiah would be. He will come as a servant and is one who will suffer in an unimaginable way. And in the first century, Jewish theology had a very hard time understanding what it would look like for that to be fulfilled, because you have a conquering Messiah coming, but how can a suffering Messiah come? What does that even look like? Nobody really understood it, but Jesus takes it on as his own identity. And as a matter of fact, the language in the book of John, from chapter 3 to chapter 8 to chapter 12 to right here, brings it all together with the phrase, lift it up. Just listen. Isaiah 52, 13 and 14. This is what we started with in our call to worship. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. 
And what does that high and lifted up, exalted servant look like? The very next verse tells us, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. This high and lifted up, exalted servant looks like he's been beaten to a pulp. You would turn away from him when you saw him. Listen to what, what Jesus says just one chapter before in John 12. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then jumping down to verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. And when I am lifted up, do you hear that language? Same language as Isaiah. When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus' exaltation does not come after his humiliating death on a cross. His humiliating death draws all people to himself. It is in the moment where he is lifted up from the ground on the cross where he is most exalted. That is where his glory happens. In John 12 and 13, Jesus completely identifies with both his words and his actions as a servant, as the suffering servant of Isaiah. What did they expect? It wasn't this. What do you expect? Our cleansing, our salvation comes from the moment of greatest humiliation of the Savior, the King of the universe. Yet in that is his glory. In that he is high and lifted up. In that he is exalted. In the redemptive irony of Jesus' saving work, the King of kings is a servant who cleanses our filth. In his death, he is glorified. His humility is his exaltation. Can you receive that kind of grace? As one who has received it, can you offer it to others? Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. This is the word of the Lord. So the meal's still going on. He just washed their feet. Peter was confused, probably on behalf of all of them. He sits down after saying, you don't understand what I'm doing right now. He asked the question, do you understand what I just did? to you. They probably didn't. But what he's saying is in my kingdom, 
this is what exaltation looks like. And so if you follow me, if you're my disciple, you're going to do like I do. Your exaltation will come in your humility. And then he puts his clothes back on, and he sits back down at the table. I don't know when in the meal he did this, but he comes back, and we can pick up in Matthew chapter 26 and kind of see what happens next as he goes. In this table, I mentioned this before, they would have been going through the same thing year after year, four promises from Exodus chapter 6. I'll read real quickly. It's not going to be on the screens, but it says it this way. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so there's four promises. They would have taken a cup, and each time they drank the cup, it would have kind of transitioned from one phase of the meal to the next. And they would have sung a hymn or a psalm and thought about the next promise. So the four promises that are there, we're not going to go through all of them, but I'll just say them. I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is celebrating deliverance from oppression. I will deliver you from slavery. This is a time where they're celebrating their freedom. I will redeem you. This is when they remember the lamb, the Passover lamb that was slain to protect them from death. And then I will take you to be my people. This is when they come out from the other side of the Red Sea to the base of Mount Sinai and they're given the law and they're shown what it looks like to be the people of God. Now, in none of the Gospels do we have any record of what Jesus said or did during the first two cups. But it picks up with the third cup, the cup of redemption. So I don't know what they were expecting for the first two. I don't know when Jesus washed their feet in the midst of the whole thing. But I can have some guesses. When they thought about being rescued from the burdens of the Egyptians, the disciples are thinking Jesus is the Messiah, and so he's going to be the king that conquers, and the one who's oppressing them now is the Romans. And so I'm assuming that they're expecting this week seems to be culminating a lot of things. So maybe this is the time where we get to celebrate that we get to be liberated from the Romans. Maybe that's their expectation, but you know what the reality is? The Romans are going to kill them in a few hours. Expectation, reality. Yet, in that death, they are freed, freed from sin. A far greater expectation is met that they didn't even know they could have. The second promise, I'll deliver you from slavery. This is a celebration of their freedom. I don't know what they expected here, but I can assume again. The glory days, right, with King David and King Solomon where all the nations around them were bringing their wealth into Israel, maybe we'll be like that again. Maybe we'll be the greatest nation in the region. But you know what happens? Jesus is put up like a, a fake king. They make fun of him. They kill him for basically treason and blasphemy. 
This doesn't seem like anything has been conquered. But when he rises from the dead, he conquers both sin and death forever. He conquers something that was unconquerable to any human imagination. Expectation versus reality is very different. But then we come to the third cup, and that's what our gospel accounts pick up on. The third cup is the cup of redemption. Redemption is like a ransom. It's a payment to get something back. Jesus is getting his people back. And so in Egypt, you remember the plagues, right? This would be the time of the meal when they remember the plagues that God did to deliver the people. And the tenth plague was the most devastating. It was the the death of the firstborn. But God gave the people of Israel a provision. And that provision was they were to take a lamb into their house for a few days. And they were to kill the lamb and have a feast with the lamb. But before they did that, they were to take some of the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts of their house. And that night, when the angel of death would come, it would see the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And it would pass over the house. That's why this is called the Passover. And that cup of redemption is remembering how God bought them back. A lamb in place of their firstborn. How did they think that promise would be fulfilled now? I don't know. Probably the same thing year after year. The same sacrifices. The same lamb for our sins. But this is where Jesus changes things drastically. He says in Matthew 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. Wow, that is hard to break. There we go. He broke it. And he said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Passover meal, that cup was just a cup of remembrance. I haven't seen anywhere in researching that it was associated with blood. But Jesus picks up this bread, and he says, This is my body. And he picks up this cup, and he says, It's my blood. And the only place in the Passover story I hear about blood is the blood of the lamb that's put on the doorposts. And so I think what Jesus is doing with this third cup is he's identifying with the lamb that would be slain to protect people from death. This is not what the disciples would have expected to happen in this moment. He didn't say or sing what he was supposed to say or sing. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood. He's already demonstrated his humility as a servant. But I think he's he's taking a step even lower now. Not just taking on the identity of a servant, but the identity of the lamb who would be slain to protect the people from death. In this table... We're celebrating a wondrous mystery. The cup of redemption. What the disciples didn't understand in that moment, but what they would later, we now as his disciples, we can understand it and we can celebrate it.
the suffering servant who washed his disciples' feet, he also washed our very souls from filth. He descended not just to the status of a servant, but the status of the lamb who was slain so that we would never see death forever. I'm going to read from Isaiah 53. I think it ties all this together. After I read it, we're going to sing a verse from a song, and then we're just going to have a time of silence before we go to the table together. Use that time to confess. Use that time to worship. Use that time to consider the gospel, the reality of the grace that's given to you. Let me read. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Heavenly Father, we know that you've heard everything we confessed, the things that make us shudder. Or do you even know the things that we were afraid to say to you? Even now, we thank you that you hear us, and you don't run, and you don't reject us. We thank you that your blood covers us and gives us life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.